This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. Coming up on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, Deep Focus CEO Ian Schaefer weighs in on what marketers can learn from the Pokemon Go phenomenon, the power of Snapchat as an advertising medium, and challenges publishers face when creating branded content for marketers. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm here with my colleague, Jack Marshall. Jack, how are you? I'm good, Steve. How's it going? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm taking a break here from my Pokemon Go game uh, to talk with you and our guest, CEO and founder of Deep Focus, Ian Schaefer. Ian, how are you? I'm doing well. I just set a lure right outside this door. So <laughs> if we hear a knocking, we'll By know the way, why. I th- you know, it's finally okay for like a 40-year-old guy to talk about like lures. <laughs> Uh, so this when, is <laughs> sorry, I'm joking. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. uh, on that note, um, yeah. so uh, yeah, this is we're in the midst of Pokemon Go mania here, um, and you know maybe it's a it's a good place to start. Uh, are you playing? Are you are you hooked? Do you think like this is the next big thing for marketers and advertisers, and everything's going to be all Pokemon Go now? No. <laughs> I, you don't I, have I a mean, po- Pokemon it, Go strategy yet? Yeah, no. There's no. The Pokemon Go department is, is actively <laughs> trying to build a strategy. The uh, I, th- I think there is. Um, it, it's 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 an evolution of technology, and it it always takes a recognizable. I shouldn't say it always, but it often takes a recognizable face or name or logo to um, to catapult something that's kind of lurking on the periphery into. Um, mainstream adoption, right? So whether it's you mean with augmented reality and yeah, case? yeah, yeah, and like you know, like so. I mean, look, the, this the Pokemon Go game was a game before it was it was Ingress before it was Pokemon Go, right? And didn't have much success and or adoption, but you know they strip out like four of the five key features and um, you Just know put some Pokemon in put there some Pokemon and in there and people understand. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. It's like funny, like having like seen the original Ingress game, like the. All, everything's the same, like literally, like all the like requiring you to, you know, having these these um, these characters in and around like sculptures and things like that. That was like part of the Ingress game itself, and now it's just it's just looped into this Pokemon Go thing, um, which is a wrapper in the same way that um, you know that Kim Kardashian helped bring emojis or you know personalized emojis into the forefront with the Komoji app right or um or mobile gaming casual gaming with what she did there so i mean it's it oftentimes takes something that you're already familiar with to make something that you're unfamiliar with more comfortable um and i think that's what that's what we're seeing here what's sort of interesting to me is i using the game the, the past few days like the ar component of it doesn't seem like the main feature it's really cool to throw yeah. pokeballs and catch and like taking screenshots and sending it to your friends when you're yeah. in a funny place. But it's kind of the walking around and the actually being outside playing a mobile game thing. It's like more the of community. like a geolocation game. You yeah, mean like it's AR? not even the AR thing, which everyone's going crazy about. It's not even maybe the biggest part of the gameplay. I don't know if you guys feel that way. Well, I mean, it's 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 just a new version of the, it's it's a new version of Pokemon. I mean, it was it's the it's the card game brought to life right. in the same way that in 2004 they brought Pac-Man to, li- Pac-Man to life in the streets of Singapore using, like, 
the 2004 version of augmented reality, um, which was very different, but still um, quite similar. So it's it's the same notion of the game. There's there's battles. I mean, I, also weird. I'm a 40 year old guy who understands how to play Pokemon. Um, <laughs> 41 technically, <laughs> but 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 that's I mean that that is the the notion of the game. It's just brought into like it's it's brought to life in a magical way, and I think that that notion of augmented reality and that notion of magic you know is really interesting like i remember f- several years ago like band-aid had like this augmented reality app where if you you know held the phone over a band-aid um it brought the characters on a band-aid that was cool to life, i remember that which that was, was super cool yeah. and like like we all I, if you have kids like you know that nine out of ten times they ask for a band-aid they don't actually need one so why not like kind of build that additional magic around around the band-aid itself and so i, I think it makes it makes total sense why this would be super cool what I, now, I think the, the notion of why it would be super cool to, like, 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 5-year-olds is, is interesting, but not too surprising given how long Pokemon – like, it spans it's like – still 30, a huge business every year. Yeah, and it, it spans like 30 years almost worth of childhoods. Right. Um, I don't know the actual number, but I feel like there's probably a 30-year range where you're super familiar with Pokemon and where have either played it or watched the cartoon or played a video game. And so, you know, I, I think, like, any new Pokemon thing would, would get a lot of attention. The fact that it went from, you know, uh, a card game, like a very physical card game, all of a sudden to, like, augmented reality. And, like, people are associating it with Nintendo, which is a pretty darn loose association to be honest with you yeah. um, but it is it's an association nonetheless um, I think it, it just caught a lot of people by surprise um, and also tapped into one of those things that everyone likes to write about well is, so are you hearing from your clients like what, no joke what is our Pokemon Go strategy like can we get in this game or can we make our own AR game like do you think that brands are going to want to do sort of more of the band-aid thing that you mentioned now that this AR thing is kind of in popular consciousness um because, well, AR has been around. I it's mean, brands, wh- there's yeah. the Band-Aid example. I know IKEA had, like, an augmented reality. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've, uh, we've uh, talked about that. I mean, I, it's, you know, I, look, everyone wanted, like, a QR code strategy after, like, the um, the Jay-Z um, decoded thing, for example, for Bing a few years ago. I mean, like, I every, like there, there comes a time when, like, audiences naturally gravitate towards a, a pretty cool experience, and then marketers, you know, will tend to say, Oh, like look at that thing that everyone naturally wanted. How do we make a way to artificially communicate our brand message through that naturally occurring <laughs> wow, experience? Uh, that sounds so authentic. Uh, yeah. So um, I don't think advertising is like generally ever really authentic because no one wants to really peek behind the curtain. I think what advertising, when advertising succeeds, it's empathetic. Right. And so it's like it actually understands why people like certain things and share certain things. And that should serve as a guideline as to what like brands should get involved with or avoid or talk about I, i'm sure i guarantee you there are social media teams all over the country trying to figure out like i think i saw Totino's pizza roll like have make some kind of pizza chew joke um right. you know you got to get in on the conversation yeah here. yeah yeah. so they're probably doing that um that's but, like dipping your toe in the water like oh if that tweet goes well maybe then we'll make an ar game yeah i think um i think jumping out and saying like oh man we need an augmented reality strategy i mean i think brands are still trying to figure out their virtual reality strategy um and i I, honestly i think both of those things are ultimately will ultimately be very similar if not the same thing i just still think we're a few years out from that being anything worth talking about or seeing like scalable results from so what do do you think about vr i mean obviously that's been 
pretty big talking point over the last couple of years, and it feels like obviously with Facebook sort of pushing it and a bunch yeah. of other guys. If Facebook says VR is important. Yeah, if it's, it's if Facebook says it's going to be big, it's going to be big. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important philosophically. I think um, like from an evolutionary tale of humanity. I mean, I think like getting past our mortal confines is probably something where you know that represents some singularity related moment for us as humans right like like getting past our corporeal things that are holding us back from doing the things we can only imagine i think there's a super cool application for that going forward and it's inevitable um just in the same way that it's inevitable that we'll have you know machine related implants in our bodies to help improve us you know biologically but um I still think that really, first and foremost, the most immediate app, there are two immediate applications for, for VR, at least in 2016 going into 2017. And one is like the stunty stuff that you could do at Madame Tussauds, right, for ghost, a Ghostbusters experience and get foot traffic in a door somewhere um, or improve the experience that you have inside a retail establishment or because it's still in curiosity phase or gaming. I mean, I think like PlayStation VR will be out for the holiday season, or at least they keep telling us it will be. So, um, you know, that that's you know, that that gaming experience is going to be crucial. And I think, um, you know, having access to those people that are going to be using it from a gaming perspective. I mean, we, we all know how influential the gaming community is, like the our, our hardcore gaming community is. And you could see that from esports all the way through to Twitch. Um, they spend a lot of money. And I think there are a lot of brands that want to get in on that action. So I think it's hyper relevant for automakers and um, beer companies and energy drinks and, you know, the yeah. the, the kinds of um, and, and honestly, like companies like Nike and Under Armour, too. Right. So companies that are into that 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 audience, I think, need to be paying close attention and creating content and or experiences for VR now. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's going forward, it's probably good to get an understanding of how it can and will be integrated into the way that companies do business going forward. But it's still really early, and I think it should still be treated as highly experimental um, for the non-obvious brands that are out there, unless they're really, you know, eager to have somebody write about them for doing something, which they're no shortage of generally in advertising, especially coming from Can. Yeah, no, I think it seems like most of the sort of VR experiences right now are, are very much geared. I mean, we see it in our inboxes all the time, you know, de- definitely geared toward, yeah. you know, getting pre- press coverage PR. or stunt yeah. PR. But, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that a lot are, you know, a lot of brands are trying. It's also, it's in like kind of, I want to say like a lot, a lot of it is, is um, like there's really beautiful storytelling being done with it. Like I think what the, what the Times has done um, with VR, I mean, they took home, and a word from Can, um, you know, with the work that they've done there. I mean, that that kind of and they, they did some branded stuff as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Mini was a part Mini of it. Well, um, and I think Verizon might have been too. I mean, I think there's that th- that is interesting, you know, and kind of um, you know brands integrating into or or underwriting or supporting experiences that um, you know highly regarded storytelling organizations are able to create. Um, you know, but that that's just a traditional media sponsorship strategy or brand or product integration strategy. It's just a new medium. I, mean, I think we, you know, when brands are thinking about what their VR strategy is, it's probably they're thinking more than just sponsoring things that are already being done or influencing the direction of a story already being told. I think they want to be they want to develop something for people. Um, they want to feel wanted as a brand or product. And like if everyone wants or is clamoring for VR, 
And like anywhere there's like a Samsung Galaxy Gear installation, there's always a line, for example, right? Marketers see that. Um, anytime there's an Oculus, same thing. Like they see that and they're like, oh, people want that. Let's make something for that. But it's never really that simple. Because when given the choice, and consumers are inevitably going to have a choice between like a beautiful piece of content made by a filmmaker, and there are increasingly more filmmakers that want to make that kind of immersive entertainment, or, you know, a, 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 an immersive commercial. Yeah. I guess where they're going to spend their time. Well, you sort of made this we, – we noticed you, you wrote that uh, post after Cannes sort yeah. of um, with your takeaways. And I thought that was sort of a good one where it's like Will Smith is there speaking and all of these creatives are sitting around and they're sort of like, oh, yes, you know, Will Smith is kind of doing the same thing we're doing. He's a creative guy. We're creative guys. But – it's different, right? It's very. It's very. People oh, go to a Will Smith movie yeah. because and they're paying money. Whereas, I mean, you you made this point like people are actively avoiding advertising. It's kind of a different. It's <laughs> yeah. People people are paying. Uh, like I have kids, so I don't remember what a movie ticket costs. But like you know, it, people are paying a lot of money to go see movies still in a theater or to download them at home, um, and they're they're buying or renting content because they want to see it. And they're but yet they're also shelling out money to block ads. And so um, it's great to get inspiration from people that are making things that people want to see. But we also have to like acknowledge the reality that generally advertising is interrupting that experience. So um, how can we get better at making things that people actually want to see while still showing the results that shareholders need to see? And I think that's that's going to be that's always that's been an age old question for the longest time, but one that just hasn't had to have been answered because we've we've had a business model that was built on interruption, and that was all that there was to buy. Now there's there's more stuff to buy. Like there's more interesting things to make, um, you know. But the muscle memory is still in the interruptive world, right? We're still, um, you know, for all like the advancements that there have been in technology and video, you still need to like watch a 15 second video that you can opt to skip before you get to a website, right? So um, if you even know you're visiting a website. So um, that's uh, th- th- that model is there because it's the problem that the, in- the media and advertising industry has been, it's, it's been preserving that problem for a while. So. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll have more with Ian Schaefer right after this. Stick around. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Jack Marshall in New York with my colleague Steve Pearlberg, and we're here with Ian Schaefer, CEO of Deep Focus. Um, so, Ian, just kind of picking up from where we just left off, um, we were talking about some of sort of the, the shiny objects in, in digital marketing. Um, and I just wonder, I mean, you, you were talking about sort of the departure from the sort of interruptive model of advertising. Um, but it seems like we're at a place now where if you're a marketer, it's very difficult to understand what your money is doing, you know, what kind of return you're getting on an investment if you're investing in branded content or, you know, whether it's VR or some of the things we were just talking about. Um, so I'm interested to hear sort of the types of conversations you're having with your clients around that stuff because obviously you guys are sort of building a business, um, you know, helping to create some of this content. Yeah. At the same time, though, trying to create a future where the answer isn't always an ad. Right. And I think that that's part of the problem. Like when you become an ad agency, you, you make ads for a living and then you have to convince 
you know, clients that your ads are better than somebody else's. And, um, we, and we, to a certain degree, we have to do that because an ad is still like the vehicle by which we deliver a message to consumers. But I think we're, we're not, not that far off from, I think, the ad economy correcting itself in a way that um, marketing becomes more than just advertising. And it really like, looks like consumer experience, like customer experience. Um, and that is everything from, that, you know, from uh, the experience of um, researching a product to the experience of buying the product to the experience of getting customer support when you need help with that product um, and then and advocacy of that product. And I think that's that th- that is the the thing that I'm still trying to build, even like 14 years in, is the solution for that world, which I think is rapidly approaching. I mean, in the meantime, we have to solve the problems and challenges of today. Um, you know, but the conversations that we're having with our clients um, you know, tend to be around, you know, how are we creating a better experience for people? How are we telling a more compelling story that we can actually deliver upon? How can we empathetically um, weave what we've got to say um, into the experiences that people are having on the platforms that they use every day, increasingly because they've got fewer ads on them? So, I mean, and and that's, there's a big existential dilemma there that we've got to actually deal with and negotiate um, every day, you know, and it's, it makes it even more difficult when, you know, marketers are looking for ad agencies to solve every problem. And And honestly, like, I don't believe that an ad agency is the solution to every problem. That's why, I mean, frankly, our strategy has been to build um, a kind of, let's call them companion companies um, adjacent to the agency to deliver things that, you know, th- again, the, the full agency model isn't, isn't always the solution for. Because, I mean, we're always going to sell what we make. I mean, that's, that's what companies do. Um, you know, or make what they sell rather. So you, um, you know, so we have to, we have to get, like, you'll, you have to, like, be able to get out of that cycle. I mean, you, it seems like some of your competitors these days are are media companies, right? Who have yeah. sort of similar kind of studios, content studios. Um, you mentioned the Times. New York Times has one. You know, we we make content for advertisers. Mm-hmm. What's your view there? I mean, because that it, that seems to threaten, right? The the traditional agency model. If if a brand can go right to a publisher, right to a media company, and work with them, like doesn't that completely undercut the agency, or, or is that um, are you kind of involved in that as well? Uh, that 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 you know, so, so, creation of that content. So yeah. So um, I mean, I would if you say it. It um, if one says it, it undermines kind of what an agency is delivering for a client. That's that's that that is just looking at the the output, right? That's if the output is making stuff or content, right? Then yeah. I mean, I guess anyone that makes content is a competitor to an agency. I think um, that. You know, one of the reasons why your why agencies existed is because of, I guess, heaping doses of objectivity and subjectivity, um, and being able to evaluate like, you know, external partners. Um, you know, be literally the agent for not just um, to um, a client and helping them make the right decisions, and um, you know, giving them a point of view and perspective that exists outside their their conference rooms, um, which you know, brands will say is like part. Of, sometimes that's their biggest problem, is getting like actual real perspective on things um the uh i i don't think in general the content studio model while i think it, it was built for and works incredibly well for b2b situations i don't think it's built to last in b2c situations so i i i don't think the the cost and overhead of operating a content studio that makes things that consumers 
want to see and also that brands need to get results from. I, I don't think that's actually sustainable business practice. It's actually, I mean, it's barely a sustainable business practice for ad agencies. And that's all they do. Um, and so when margins get squeezed from an agency perspective, um, I, I think most of the time content studios are working on even slimmer margins, or in many cases are the cost of doing business to sell inventory at a premium. And I, I, I think while in the short term it's differentiating publishers from one another um, and their ability to do that, um, you know, I think at some point they're going to have to make a decision, you know, is that – like BuzzFeed made it early on, right? BuzzFeed said, we're not going to have any display advertising. Right. And the that's stuff, their whole business. And their whole business is making content for people. The challenge is when advertisers spend money on content, they expect to see results. And they're used to seeing results from ads. Right. And, they Ad, know, and they know what those results look like and yeah. they know how to evaluate that. And ads are meant to sell things, right? When, when a publisher makes you know, branded content, they're not necessarily meant to sell things. They're meant to drive views. They're meant to get people to share things. And the closer you get to the things that people want, surprise, surprise, often the further it gets away from what the brand actually wants to sell. Maybe not just say, but actually needs to sell. So, um, you know, that that's a, that's a nuance that requires commitment, time, energy. And th- that's what ad agencies sell. The ad agencies sell time. And there's a reason why they sell time is it takes, as I think Mariah Carey said, love takes time. Um, you know, and I that think, the, that's the motto of your agency. Yeah, right? yeah, it does. Well, love takes time. And, and um, I, although I think time is a ridiculous thing, like a ridiculously way, a way, like a stupid way to buy advertising services, it's what this, the industry has been based upon. So when content studios have to deliver brand results, oftentimes like in a quarter as a result of a particular effort, And if they get held up to the same scrutiny as an ad campaign from an agency, they often fall short. And I think that's what – that's the unsustainable part. Um, So, like, we've built a practice called DFX that's literally built around what I would call, like, brand whispering with publishers. So working closely and collaboratively with with, um, publisher content studios um, to help get to the right message that's going to deliver the right business results in the right period of time um, with as few rounds of revisions as possible. So we can be empathetic to what what these publishers need to do to survive because Lord knows the world needs publishers, especially like news organizations. So, um, you know, so we we need to make sure that – that, that the content that they create is is on brand, and we take that as like as a brand's creative agency, like that should be part of our responsibility. It should be part of every creative agency's responsibility. The problem is their models don't reward them for getting other people to make content, like because right. ad agencies get paid to make stuff. So we've had to like kind of like, honestly like swallow some pride, um, you know, in the name of actually doing the right things for our clients. So uh, have you sort of pivoting here? Um, you know, what have, has been your dealings with? We've talked about Snapchat a lot on the on the podcast, so we thought it'd be good to sort of, you know, chat with you about that. Like, what's your view on marketers using Snapchat um, as sort of like the next big big platform? And do you, do you kind of see it as, um, you know, something that's going to be a, a viable uh, alternative to? Um, you know, TV, Facebook, do you think it's going to explode like some people think, or, or do you kind of see it as um, a little bit too too soon to tell? Um, I think it's already exploded. I mean, I mean, you, you go to – I was at the um, at the Beyonce concert at City Field like about a month ago, and, and literally, I mean, every – first of all, DJ Khaled, a guy whose basically career has been made on Snapchat, <laughs> is standing up there on stage in front of 50,000 people 
doing his thing with all of his like Snapchat sayings like on an LCD screen in front of his DJ table, and everyone everyone, everyone, everyone recognizes <laughs> him and, and, and shouting him out. Every phone, it's not the native camera that they're using. It, you could see it's a Snapchat user interface. Like so, they, they've made it. I mean, they've cracked through. They've 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 reached a, a point of saturation, um, which I, I can only imagine was similar. Um, to what MTV was like in the 80s. I mean, it's like, it, and, and they've also managed to do it while building themselves up as a brand, like a very recognizable brand that, you know, owned the color yellow, owns the color yellow. Well, it was funny. We were talking about Cannes. I mean, some of their presence in Cannes was just it was the insane. color. Yeah. Like, it, they, they didn't have so logo. much. It was just a yellow billboard. I mean, go, going through the security line at JFK, I mean, you know, it's just yellow and the ghost in the, the security bins. That was really yeah. clever. Uh, I mean, and it's like, it's funny. Like, you know, they, they know that they, they have to, they don't have to say a lot to make a statement. And I think that's, give, forgive the colloquialism, I mean, it's a baller thing to do. I mean, that is, that is what that is what a confident media company does in the same way that you know mtv had the spaceman and like that was their thing and they only needed to show that like kind of interstitial for a second and you knew exactly what it stood for i mean snapchat has the ghost i mean they they buy like some of the most expensive real estate in times square and they literally just put the ghost on it or they'll buy billboards along the highway or along the the freeways in la and they'll just put like the local filter on it i mean people the they know that the people that they want to reach know exactly what that is, and I think you get there um, because um, you know you're, you're confident in yourself and you've got the data and statistics to back them up. Now they also have the data to sell advertisers, which which gets really interesting. So I think that that, that is where to me like the tipping point went from being like kind of curiosity to actual like something to like now yes i do think that just about every brand does in fact need a snapchat strategy because they've matured as an advertising platform you know to the point where they've got an api to the point where their user base is broad enough where it's pretty much getting to like you know a a pretty wide swath of adults that are just not on the coasts um and they're going global fast so yeah i mean i think i mean it is a um for us it's a very important platform to be working with and we are i mean our moment studio is a is a partner in there is a creative their partner API. in the program yeah. and and you know so it's uh we're, we're we share a building we're in their building in uh in Times square so it, it is a um we we see them as a critical part of our clients ad campaigns going forward and i think i would say that to a to a company they're they're all super eager to do things on that platform. And I think up until recently, the price of entry has been really expensive, though. Um, but with In the theory, API, that should bring that down, you know, now that they're, they have that API. and Sure, yeah. And it, and it goes beyond, like, yeah, of course, you can create a filter for a couple of hundred bucks. But, um, you know, but now I think there's, there's, there are a lot more options, and they're getting a lot more mature. Um, and, it, I mean, it reminds me in some ways of early Facebook in that there was, like, a mad rush to work with them. And, you know, I remember... But they're kind of following the the Facebook playbook, well, so to speak. Well, because a lot of former Facebook people at the company. <laughs> well, yeah. So, it like, well for Facebook. So. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, there, I remember with Facebook saying, oh, we can't get Facebook to pick up the phone. We can't get Twitter to pick up the phone. We can't get Foursquare to pick up the phone. We can get Twitter to pick up the phone now. We'll pick up the phone now. <laughs> um, the, um, but now, I mean, it's like uh, th- there's – I mean, you get the same – you hear the same things from Snapchat. And I'm like, I've seen this movie before. Um, and, and I think this one is going to, like – I don't know if end is the right word, but it's going to go pretty well. Um, and I think they've, they're, they're, they're confidently building a modern media company, um, which is different than what Facebook did, though. I think Facebook built a modern advertising platform. 
I think Snapchat is busy building a modern media company with some of the greatest hits of Facebook's advertising platform built in. So how do you see those two platforms kind of diverging from an advertising perspective? Um, so I, I think Facebook is going to be is a must buy from a um, from a sheer audience data standpoint. I mean, you know, they, they've been arguing the they, they've been pointing like at TV as the enemy for for a long time. You know, they've been saying like, why buy TV when you get the same audience? literally the same people, individuals on Facebook because they've got about 100%, 100% penetration. And, oh, by the way, they're mobile too, So, which is you know even more valuable. Whereas Snapchat has been selling basically TV up until this point. And F- Snapchat has been selling scarcity. So whereas like Facebook is selling you know infinite reach, you know, Snapchat, like their opportunities are still rather scarce. And I think there's something beautiful about that in the same way that like there's, that's still the beautiful part of television, um, you know, is the scarcity around live events. Like, you know, I, there's, I feel like there's like two TVs. Like there's the TV, there's like the cable news networks that, I, that you know, I'll watch. And like you literally get the same like two ad council commercials over and over and over and over again for three hours. And it's mind numbing and, and annoying and makes my knuckles white. I mean, I love the ad council, but the frequency <laughs> yeah, is a little too high on some, of those, <laughs> on some of those spots. Um, or there are commercials for um, pills that, you know, I'm too young to use for now. So, like, you know, the, the, but, but the other TV is, is sports, live events, spectacle, the Olympics, you know, things that yeah, are only good once and they're only good, like, at the time that you're watching it. And, um, you know, the association with that, I think, is the demand for those live events, which is, again, why all these platforms are rushing to, like, live, quote-unquote live, um, you know, is because there's scarcity around that. And and um, I think Snapchat is delivering that scarcity in the form of a brand-new experience that really nobody saw coming. Um, and, and whether those experiences are, like, face-swapping or, like, you know, or, um, you know, changing your, your appearance or filters or, um, you know, broadcasting live from something. Like, these are, these are all new elements of scarcity that, um, you know, are rare in the world of, of digital media. I mean, like, we're, we get our music for free. Like, we stream things on demand. Like, nothing's scarce anymore. Like, everything that's really scarce is kind of artificially so. So when you get something that is, like, genuinely scarce, an experience that's rather scarce and an audience that's even harder to reach – they can command a, like a pretty high value for it, and I think that's what Snapchat's doing incredibly well. But that would apply to like Facebook Live, for example, and obviously Twitter is doing more with, with live um, content now as well. So yeah, but the, the the challenge is well, that's what. So Facebook Live for normal people is mundane. Like so, like the average person broadcasting something on Facebook is. I mean, no offense to the average human being, but it's going to be pretty damn boring, right? And so um, it's going to be relevant to maybe like you know like three to five people in their lives that really want to be a voyeur. Sort of like their photos. Yeah, kind of like the like a more boring version of their photos. <laughs> oh, more boring? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's actually would wind up be more because you have to fill time like when you're yeah, watching something as opposed to a photo, which is like meant to be ephemeral, right? So, um, which is why they hired Ricky Van Veen, right? Which is why they're trying to, um, you know, turn, you know, what I think is Facebook Live for normals into a channel um, filled with content that is worth watching. And I think that, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a strategy. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Facebook Live becomes, you know, the equivalent of like a Facebook TV, whether that's a Facebook TV app. I mean, that's clearly their goal, too. I mean, you, yeah. you sort of... It seems like they're moving in that direction. And it, they've, they've, it's funny because they flirted with being a media company a few times, right? So they've got, the, they have their anthology program where they resell partner content, um, 
but solely as a vehicle to sell more Facebook inventory. So, like, you know, that that's the only thing about, like, kind of, you know, the, the content side of the business that, that, you know, has me skeptical about what they do. But clearly, you know, buying Oculus puts them in the content business. So it's like it's hard to avoid the content business. Um, but, you know, it, it is it's, it's also hard to do both. It's hard to be in the audience business and the content business. And I think for the longest time, you saw a lot of cable networks buying most of their content um, from uh, from studios and just selling the audience back to advertisers. Eventually, they get to a place where they realize that they need some ownable IP, so they need to own the content as well. I mean, like, look at Mad Men. Like, AMC had Mad Men. They didn't make Mad Men. Like, they bought it from Sony and rented it, basically, from Sony. Um, You know, now you're starting to see them produce their own stuff. And I think eventually, you know, uh, audience networks tend to acquire their own content and then eventually produce their own content. But, you know, I think you wind up sacrificing scale by doing that. Too. All right. Unfortunately, we've got to end it there. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. That, that wraps it up for the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Join us next time. Thanks. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.